0: But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own. But as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. To bring them together and make them one. So from that day on they plotted, or better resolved, to take his life. Therefore Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews, instead he withdrew to a region near the desert, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. In this passage I want us to notice especially three things. So if you're a note-taker here, I'm making it easy on you right now, all right? I want you to notice number one, the volatile situation that there was. The volatile situation. Number two, the violent solution. The violent solution that was offered. And number three, I don't want you to miss God's sovereignty behind it all. The volatile solution, situation rather, the volatile situation, the violent solution, and behind it all, God's sovereignty and I pray that as we consider this God's spirit will apply to our hearts the truth of his great love for us of the tremendous provision that he has made for us in Jesus Christ and if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian or maybe you're not normally in church you've not really looked at the Bible very much Uh, let me just say as a member of the same body of Christ uh, worldwide that all these Christians gathered here this morning are part of you're very welcome here Uh, speaking on their behalf we would love to have you back anytime so uh, do come gather here every Sunday morning and we study the Bible together but I hope that you'll gain a clearer understanding uh, from this historical record of who Jesus is Uh, I had the opportunity to look at the Waterstones in Princess Street the other day and you're not going to learn much about Jesus that's accurate from the books that are there Uh, you you just won't I mean uh, I'll tell you as a former agnostic I have a PhD in history from Cambridge I'm not saying it to brag I'm just saying that if you're here and you're not a believer I care a lot about history and most of the books that are being sold about Jesus are not very good if you look at the original sources you'll find wonderfully clear material and this is from the first century this is written by someone who knew Jesus who was there so I hope that as we look at this passage you'll see more of who Jesus is and of why Jesus came why he lived what he actually claimed himself not just what somebody who's hoping to make money off you buying a book is saying and here if you're you're a Christian this morning and particularly if you're discouraged in some way if you're finding life hard going right now just watch closely in this passage as even the darkest of God's providences are used to work the greatest good for you well let's begin with a volatile situation to understand Let's recall the the setting for this meeting. Jesus, if you look there in John chapter 11, if you keep your Bibles open, I'll be referring to the text a lot. If you look there earlier in John chapter 11, what had Jesus just done? He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. And many people had been there to see it. And the city is now all abuzz about this, as you can imagine they would be. This was not a common occurrence, even in the ministry of Jesus himself. Lazarus had been raised from the dead. And many were worried. I mean, if even the dead were being raised to follow Jesus, surely the crowds couldn't be far behind. Who knows what was possible next? The situation seemed to be in in meltdown from the uh, perspective of the leaders of the nation. And what were they doing about it? This is what they were asking each other. You look there in verse 47. "What, What are we accomplishing, they asked. And, of course, the implied answer to that is nothing. That's why they're asking the question in frustration, and exasperation. And here's the problem as they perceived it. Look there in verse 47. Here's the problem that they saw. Here is this man performing many miraculous signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Now that's an interesting assessment of the situation, isn't it? When they're looking at this rabbi who has raised someone from the dead and how popular he's getting to be, their concern is very clearly laid out here. And it's very interesting. Notice, first of all, a couple of things. One, they did not deny Jesus' miracles. Very interesting. These, these first people, they're not Christians. Uh, they're jews like jesus but these are jews who did not recognize jesus as the messiah so they don't have any partisan reason to to think these miracles are true except there were so many people there who saw them and know them it's just common knowledge they were true It'd be a waste of time to deny the truth of these miracles too many people had witnessed them so they didn't deny jesus's miracles very interesting second thing Notice that they, they, they simply express their concern that his activity, however it may be explained, that their activity, uh, that his activity will jeopardize their interests. You know, their, their temple. That's what they mean by their place. And their, their nation. Now perhaps they regarded Jesus as a charlatan. I mean, that, that could be. But they don't seem to cast any aspersions on the truthfulness of of the accounts they were hearing of the miracles Jesus was performing? No, it seems that they thought these miracles actually happened. It may be that some of them had even seen Lazarus or maybe interviewed that blind man that was healed back in chapter 9. But that wasn't their concern. Isn't that amazing? Could you imagine witnessing or knowing near firsthand of miracles like this and that not being your overwhelming concern. No, their concern was, what do we see here? There at the end of verse 48, their place and their nation. Now this could have been putting sort of, you know, religious and national concerns above their own in a kind of selfless service way but it sounds to me very clearly as if it were a concern for their own interests narrowly defined you know a concern for their own position and station rather than anything more after all what was the point of the temple what was the reason for the nation the temple you remember was the sign of the presence of God and the nation what was there it existed as God's own special people but for them for these leaders well it was the place of their security their pride their position and it was not to be interfered with because it was theirs forget whether Jesus is the Messiah he's gonna mess everything up they were saying the situation was one in which Delay seemed dangerous. I'm sure you've been in situations like that. I'm sure you can imagine. Where your self-interest is clear and it is clearly in danger. This was a volatile situation. The people were, were moving en masse, it seems almost, toward Jesus. They needed a solution fast. So now, point two. What do they do? Well, they had offered to them the solution of substitution the violent solution look at verse 49 again then one of them named Caiaphas who was high priest that year spoke up you know nothing at all you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish and Joseph Caiaphas was high priest really for a lot of years 18 to 36 AD and 36 Both he and Pontius Pilate were removed. So Caiaphas was practiced. He had been around the block a few times. And what he advocated in this moment of crisis was something which we might see as a kind of pragmatic realism. I don't know if you see that here in Edinburgh, but we see that in the United States Capitol a lot. You know, a sort of international realism. Whatever will save our community or a political realism whatever will preserve the power of us and our friends. So, would you save the nation, he asks them, then destroy this man. I can well imagine Caiaphas saying this. His concerns were practical. I mean, though he held certainly to religious position, he was a practical man, a man, I take it, with whom one could do business. And he had a plan for that situation. He was the kind who was always ready. Our problem is political, said Caiaphas. We simply need to dispose of this guy and we'll be fine. He appealed baldly to self-interest. You see that here in verse 50 very clearly. You realize how, how both subtle and brazen it is at the same time there in verse 50. He says, you do not realize that it is better for you. This is the way to keep ourselves secure. This is how we will keep our place, our people, our nation. And as you may know, Caiaphas' advice was followed. I mean, you're actually getting in a human sense the, the, the genesis of the plot and the plan right here. They did succeed in having Jesus killed. But the irony of Caiaphas' statement would have been fully evident to John's readers, that is to the people reading this gospel of John. Because though John was there when these events would have taken place, the raising of Lazarus and with Jesus at this time around 30 AD, he was probably writing this decades later, around 80 AD, 50 years later. And in the meantime, though Caiaphas' policy had been followed, and it had succeeded in killing Jesus, it had failed to save their temple or their nation. By the time John's readers read this, by the time John writes it down, it was clear for all to see that both Jerusalem and its temple had been destroyed in 70 AD, even though they had killed this man, Jesus. Caiaphas was looking at the volatile situation the wrong way. You see, the the, the real problem wasn't political. It was spiritual. And that's what Jesus had been teaching. So look there in verse 51. We read of Caiaphas' statement, He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now that little word for there, which you see in verse 50 and 51 and 52, that is the idea of substitution or representation. That is that Jesus was to die in the place of or instead of some others who would otherwise die. Now this is precisely what Caiaphas had said in verse 50. Caiaphas clearly intended Jesus' death to be substitutionary. He had no doubt about that, but only in a political sense. The Christians, however, understood Caiaphas' words even more than he himself understood them. This language of Jesus' dying for others They understood in light of other statements that Jesus himself had made. What he had taught them. What he had taught his followers about his impending death. If you look back in chapter 6, verse 51. Jesus says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If a man eats of this bread, he will live forever This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Or turn over a few pages to chapter 10. You look there in verse 11. Chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, Caiaphas could see in Jesus' death nothing but a political maneuver. That's all he intended. John knew that in Jesus' death was redemption. This is the very heart and core of the gospel of Christianity. So, friend, again, if you're here this morning and you're not normally in church, pay particular attention here. This biblical idea of Jesus' death being substitutionary. A substitutionary death for sinners is at the heart of Christianity. According to Jesus' teaching, all of us have sinned. We've lived in ways that reject God and His authority in our lives. And if you don't know what I mean, just consider your own conscience. I don't think there's one person listening to my voice this morning, regardless of whether or not you're a Christian, who knows, who doesn't know, rather, that you have sinned that you have done things that are wrong. I think we all know that by our own human nature, the way God has made us. That leaves us in a question then, and in a state that's difficult because God is good. And because God is good, He will punish sinners. He will punish all sinners for all sin. Because God is good, there is a hell. And because God is always good, that hell never ends, according to the Bible. Friends, we are in a serious state. If we are to have any hope at all, it will not come from ourselves. You know, our modern world is telling us that our problems all come from outside, other people's situations, and the answers all lie within to get in touch with ourselves. It's a lie from hell. Our problems are all within, they're us, they're not fundamentally anybody else or any of our circumstances all of all those things do is exploit problems that are already resident within us our own sins our own estrangement from God and if there is to be an answer for us it must come from outside of ourselves it must come from what God has provided and that's what he's done in Jesus according to the Bible the good news for you this morning the good news for me is that if we will repent of our sins turn from them and trust in Jesus Christ, this one who died for sinners, died to take the penalty that is due us for our sins, died for us, then we can know by the way God raised him from the dead that God accepted that sacrifice. His wrath for all of us who would turn and trust in him was exhausted on Jesus. And we can be forgiven of our sins and have the of life because of Jesus' death, for us. J.I. Packer summed it up this way. God judges all sin as it deserves, which Scripture affirms and my conscience affirms to be right. My sins merit ultimate suffering and rejection from God's presence. Conscience also confirms this. And nothing I do can blot them out. But friends, if I will repent from my sins and trust in Christ, take Him as my Lord and Savior, then the penalty due to me for my sins, whatever it was, was paid for me by Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by His death on the cross. And because this is so, then I, through faith in Christ, am made, as Paul says elsewhere, the righteousness of God. I am given His righteousness. I am justified. I am pardoned. Accepted. Sonship becomes mine. I am taken as a child of God. I am adopted. Christ's death for me is my only ground of hope. As John Owen wrote If he fulfilled not justice, I must. If he underwent not wrath, I must to eternity. So my faith in Christ is God's own gift to me, given by virtue of Christ's death for me. The cross procured it. Christ's death for me guarantees my preservation then to glory. Christ's death for me is the the measure and the pledge of the love of the Father and the Son to me. Christ's death for me calls and constrains me to trust and to worship and to love and to serve. This is what Jesus' death achieved and achieves. He died for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, we read in verse 52, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Now, friend, one more thing to notice in all this. Number three. What about the sovereignty of God? over this most heinous act what did Jesus do he gave the blind their sight he raised the dead to life he gave his own life why did God allow them to take his life some people wonder how could Caiaphas in this situation here that we're looking at how could he have meant one thing and yet at the same time God be prophesying through him some other truth. Well John has other examples of words being understood more fully later. The the real question people have about this isn't so much a a hermeneutical one about how John could legitimately interpret Caiaphas' words in a way other than what his original intent was when he said them. No, it's a theological question people have when they read this because here we see that that which Caiaphas meant for bad selfish reasons that very thing God intended and for good how can that be? we may wonder when we consider a vicious attack on someone that we know and love when we consider some injustice done towards someone even a slight when we consider even a serious medical problem, how can things which are genuinely bad in and of themselves be turned to such good purposes? The Bible teaches very plainly that in God's plan there is both His own very real sovereignty and at the same time real human responsibility now we today tend to have no trouble understanding that second half real human responsibility we're born understanding that we're taught that constantly that we are genuinely responsible for our actions but i think people today have a great deal of trouble understanding the first that god is genuinely sovereign and so we eliminate tension in our understanding by eliminating the first idea that god is sovereign the very real sovereignty of god and then we have no problem left except that is until we start reading our Bibles. I remember as a young Christian encountering this idea with some other friends at university. I was not brought up being taught the sovereignty. I was brought up in a Baptist church. Well, I was an agnostic, became a Christian, went to a Baptist church, was taught the gospel there, but never really taught anything about God's sovereignty. Went to university as an undergrad, and all my friends had just read J.I. Packers Knowing God. And so they were all very excited about this idea of God's sovereignty, and they started talking to me about it. And I didn't recognize anything like that and didn't like the idea, honestly and argued against it for about nine months I was known as sort of the campus Arminian you know but then I remember going home that summer after my first year and reading my Bible and I started finding things like this every place it was like somebody had given me a new Bible I didn't necessarily like it but it became pretty clear it was true I, one of the most striking examples of this to me then was in Acts chapter 4 it's a little bit of a side road but it's a great little passage Peter has been in prison. There's a prayer meeting among the early Christians to for the Lord to release him. He's released miraculously. He comes. He leads them in prayer in Acts chapter four, and he prays this most extraordinary prayer, theologically speaking, in verse uh, twenty-four, Acts four, verse twenty-four. When they heard this that Peter and John were there, they've been. Uh, Peter and John reported what had happened. They raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. Wow, when you've just suffered like they have, is that the first thing you're going to call God? Well, it it is in the New Testament. Sovereign Lord, they said. You made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. So again, like with Caiaphas, you have David's intention speaking, but also God sovereignly speaking through him. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then this extraordinary line in verse 27. Indeed, Herod, the half-Jewish king, and Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, met together with the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and the people of Israel in this city. So four groups that are normally not together, right? I mean, even the people of the nation didn't like Herod, their own king. So these four groups were not normally doing anything together. But here we see in verse 27, Herod Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed. Then this is the mind-blowing statement. Verse 28. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Friends, I cannot answer all the questions you have about this in this sermon. Frankly, if we had all day, I could not answer all the questions you have about this. I can't answer all the questions I have about it. But I know the Bible teaches it. And if you want to understand this passage in John 11, which is an important passage to understand, because this is the genesis of the crucifixion. If you're really wanting to understand who Jesus is, what his mission is, and you want to understand this passage, and this is the tension that we see in our passage. One of the best illustrations I know of this passage in the Bible is in the Old Testament. It's the book of Job. You know, in Job chapter 1, you see this man who was righteous, who loved God. God had blessed him in an earthly sense. But then Satan, the accuser, the heavenly, uh, supernatural, heavenly not meaning in heaven as opposed to hell, but heavenly meaning not earthly merely, but the supernatural, you know, one who accuses people in the presence of God, Satan comes and accuses Job And he says, look, Job just loves you, God, because you've blessed him so much. And so God says, all right, very well. You may test him. Now, Job doesn't know about that meeting. So what's happening in Job's life is terrible things happen. A foreign tribe comes and marauds and kills. Now, just take that as an example. Why did they do that? Because they were robots of Satan? No. They had their own motives. They wanted the stuff The riches, they didn't care about the human life. They had their reasons for doing what they did. But we see in reading Job that behind that, there was malicious satanic intent. Satan also had what he was attempting to do. But we see by reading Job that even behind that, there is the sovereignty of God getting glory to himself in a way none of us would plan or guess. Now, friends, we are right next door to the edge of deep mystery. But we can say this much, that God is sovereign. I remember in his commentary, Calvin refers to God using Satan with Job as a surgeon uses a scalpel. Friends, God has done that in your own life. God is that sovereign in your own life. That's why Paul can be assured and speak as he does in Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Well, then, does this mean that error and sin and misery are simply a passing illusion? Or that God doesn't really mind sin, evil actions? No, not at all. Friends, Jesus died because of sin, that's why he came to die. But an understanding of God's sovereignty is to encourage us to trust him. Even when we cannot understand all of his ways, as Job wouldn't have understood his ways, we can know that he is trustworthy. He is to be trusted. I can't overstate the importance of learning practically as a Christian to trust God. Paul, I know this isn't your induction service, but as a pastor, brother, you will need to know this. You will see things that happen in people's lives. You'll see things that happen in this church. That you will see no good reason for God to allow. And you will be tempted to doubt God. But do not doubt God. He is a faithful God. Friend, if you're here as a Christian and you're struggling with some particular happening in your own life, you can know that Romans 8.28 is true we don't have to understand how something is meant for our good by God in order for it to in fact be for our good we're called not to understand all of God's particular purposes in our lives but by reading his word his spirit helps us to understand God himself in his character and we find that when we don't understand the reasons for what he allows even then in the darkest of times we can trust him he knows what he's doing and when we doubt that we merely need to look at the cross and see how he has so personally involved himself at great cost to love us as he has this is the character of our god you know it's it's interesting that there's nothing more about lazarus's experience as I've reflected on this passage, I don't understand why Lazarus is not one of the stars of the New Testament. You know, I'm walking around. I died. Jesus raised me from the dead. Here I am. You know, I'm, I'm the living proof. I was there. You know, he is referred to a few times in chapter 12. But that's, that's it then. I mean, there's nothing more about his life and then presumably he died again. You know, waits, he awaits the resurrection like we did. But see, Lazarus' importance wasn't really just merely his raising itself. It was how he functioned as a sign. He was a big sign. Lazarus. And it was such a big sign, it led to a big decision. The final decision to kill Jesus. They put up with so much, these unbelieving religious leaders. But Jesus had just gone too far here. He showed that he could empty out even the grave. And the religious leaders would not accept the threat that was to them. Isn't it interesting? Jesus does good things and he gets a divided response. Surely if we do good things people will like us. The gospel will be winsome. Everybody will be converted in Edinburgh. No. no Jesus does good things, amazing things, but people are divided in their response to Jesus these signs of Jesus' identity, because that's what they were, they produced division, as some believed, and some clearly didn't. We read here in verse 53, look at 53 again. So from that day on, they plotted, or as I say, that's better read, resolved, I think. They resolved to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the Jews. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the desert, a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. So because Jesus brought Lazarus to life, they decided that Jesus must be put to death. They utterly and completely rejected him, even to the point of deciding that he must be killed. The irony in this is deep in every way. And so Jesus withdrew. It almost sounds a bit like he went went into hiding from the authorities. He withdrew with all his friends into a little village on the edge of the desert. And really, friends, even that that withdrawing from Jerusalem when he was rejected by the national and religious leaders, that was symbolic of what was happening. He came to his own, and his own received him not. But to those who received him, to them he gave the privilege of being the children of God. It was Jesus on the one hand who was a cause of fresh divisions between those who had who had much in common the Jews who rejected him and the Jews who accept him but he was also on the other hand a cause of great unity unity among those who would oppose him Herod Pontius Pilate the gentile the people of this nation and also cause of unity among those who accepted him we read in verse 45 therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary And had seen what Jesus did, put their faith in Him. Did you notice that? Many of the Jews put their faith in Him. And it was not simply the Jews who came that Jesus brought to faith in salvation in Christ. But those of other nations as well. Look at verse 51. See what we read there. He did not say this on His own, but as high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Friends, it is amazing the way God puts his church together. From Scotland and the United States, from Poland and Nigeria, from China, and even as far away as Wales. You know? I mean, here is his kingdom. A little microcosm. People who would have nothing in common, really, apart from Christ. Here we are together in this same place. We assemble this morning as an assembly of the convicted, an assembly of the sentenced. We, friends, us, we should die for our sins. But mercy. I don't know if anybody reads Shakespeare anymore. But I love the Merchant of Venice. That one place where Portia is dressed up as the judge and Shylock is pleading his case. He's demanding justice. He wants his pound of flesh. And Shakespeare put in Portia's mouth that wonderful summary of Christianity in many ways. When she says, dressed up as a judge, speaking to Shylock, though justice be thy plea, consider this, that in the course of justice none of us should see salvation. We do pray for mercy. That's the Christian statement this morning. That's a statement you can make. Through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ, dying for, His death for sinners, you can have forgiveness for your sins against God and reconciliation with God if you will repent of your sins and trust in Christ as your Savior? Will you? Do you? Let's pray together. Lord God, we confess that any faith we have in the Lord Jesus Christ and your action in him is only by your grace. We pray, Lord, that you would fully and freely give gifts of repentance and faith this morning. Pray, Lord, that you would convict us of our sins and drive us all afresh to Christ, to look on his death as being for us. So exonerating your holiness and your mercy, your justice and your love. In total, your goodness. Oh, you are a good God. Thank you for the way you have loved us in Jesus Christ. Teach us, Lord, to look at the cross and so to trust you in all your providences in our lives. We pray this for our eternal good and for your eternal glory in Christ's name.